I think it teaches them a lot about who and what you believe in. And you really have to look at, you know, some of those kids were 18. And so they'll be voting in the next election. And you have to really think about who you're voting to become president and who you're voting as your council members. And, and so I think it's a real life example for them early on. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak about the case of Lisandro Claros, one of the top soccer players in the D.C. area who was detained and deported by ICE. That's the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. I will be interviewing his coach at the Bethesda Soccer Club, Matt Ney. Also, I got a Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards, as well as talking about the forthcoming demonstration in New York City at the Park Avenue NFL headquarters for Colin Kaepernick. But first, let's talk about Lisandro Claros before we get Coach Matt Ney on the line. Look, Donald Trump's immigration policies, his inhumane immigration policies, recently smacked the members of the elite Bethesda soccer club right between the eyes. Their teammate and friend, Lisandro Claros Saravia, was detained by ICE along with his older brother Diego. Both were deported within 96 hours. Lisandro, like many players on the Bethesda Soccer Club, has or had a college athletic scholarship waiting for him. He is considered one of the top 50 players in the extremely competitive DMV region. Now, the brothers migrated to the United States as children in 2009, fleeing widespread violence in El Salvador. Their status in 2012, again as child refugees fleeing violence, involved taking part in voluntary check-ins with immigration officials. But that was ICE under the Obama administration, which frankly was brutal enough. But when they went in for a check-in under Trump, they were imprisoned like criminals and immediately scheduled for deportation. Lisandro had a promising future as a soccer player and Diego worked in a car repair shop in Baltimore. Neither had a criminal record and none of that mattered to ICE. The one satisfaction in this horror story is imagining the faces in the Trump White House when they learned that Lisandro's teammates, many of them white, private school educated and economically comfortable, protesting the pending deportations outside the Department of Homeland Security headquarters in Northwest Washington. They must have choked on their coffee when reading about young people like Lisandro's former teammate and St. Albans graduate, Foster McCune, who is out there in the summer heat protesting the DHS. McCune has a full athletic ride to Georgetown, one of the top soccer programs in the country. And he said to the Washington Post, This is about so much more than soccer now. We want our friend back. People like Foster McCune were standing side by side with Lisandro and Diego's sister, Fatima, who wept during the team's demonstration and held a sign that read, Stop separating families. Let my brothers live their American dream. You know, the sports world was in a flutter over Ladanian Tomlinson's Pro Football Hall of Fame speech last week, where he said the following. America is the land of opportunity. Let's not slam the door on those who may look or sound different from us. Rather, let's open it wide for those who believe in themselves that anything is possible and are willing to compete and take whatever risk necessary to work hard to succeed. 
It's a lovely sentiment. But journalists and athletes should back their glowing tweets with deeds and stand with a great young athlete whose life is being destroyed by an amoral administration running an anti-immigration operation straight out of the West Wing. I want to plead with my fellow journalists to report on this story in the name of athletic solidarity and basic human justice. We should fight to get the Claros brothers back to the state of Maryland, where they can live their lives in the home of their choice. There is a pressing need for all of us to take a lead from the Bethesda Soccer Club, and frankly, that's a sentence I never thought I'd write, and stand up. Those of us who are not threatened by deportation have a duty to our friends and neighbors. In the decades to come, you don't want the shame of telling your grandchildren that you look the other way. And now on the line, we have Lisandro Claros' coach for two years with the Bethesda Soccer Club, Matt Ney. Matt, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the Lisandro Claros that you know. Humanize this person for us, please. Sure. Uh, Lisandro came to us four years ago and as a U13, 14 player and was a kid that from day one would step on the field and work hard and make every practice, never make an excuse. If he didn't have a ride, he'd find a ride. If he didn't, if he couldn't find a ride, he would take the bus. If he couldn't get on the bus, he would figure out a way to get there. Uh, And you know, it shows it just showed his commitment to the craft that he was trying to become excellent at. And, you know, he would show up and ask you how you're doing. He, he genuinely cared about his teammates, his the coaching staff and you know, a kid that you want to coach. He's a kid that every day wanted to become better. And it's it's those type of players that the reason you're coach. And right. uh, it's a shame to see those type of players then. Uh, be deported for for political reasons. Yeah, and talk to us a little bit, if you could, about the Bethesda Soccer Club that he was a part of and that you coached. Like, what is it? Who joins it? At what level uh, do, do they play at? Uh, g- give us a sense of the club, and also how unusual is it? Is some is it for somebody from Lisandro's background to become a part of the Bethesda Soccer Club? Sure. So, Bethesda Soccer Club is a it's a pretty big club and not massive, though, in terms of clubs around the world. And we this team, the teams that Lissandra was a part of competed in the U.S. Soccer Development Academy, which run by US, the U.S. Soccer Federation. And they compete at the highest level in, the, in this country. We train four to five days a week plus a game. So they usually the teams are usually together between five and six maybe even seven days a week. So the commitment is high. You don't, you don't make one of these teams without really committing yourself, your time, your family's time to the sport. And he had done that and he had essentially proven himself to be one of the best, maybe top 50 players in the Washington DC area, which is a hotbed for soccer in this, in this country. Uh, one, of, one of several, but certainly one of them. And how unusual is it for a player from Lisandro's background to be in the Bethesda Soccer Club? What What is the soccer club like uh, demographically? Who's a part of it? Uh, what kind of families do they come from? You know, it's Bethesda has a very wide range, uh, which is a is lucky on our part to have a variety of players from different backgrounds, from different countries that allows kids to learn 
different cultures through the sport. Um, so while we have a variety of several players from Central America and African descendants from their families and uh, certainly some American kids. And, um, you know, it's, it's a team that is diverse and we pride ourselves on being diverse. Someone of Lissandro's background and the, how he got to the country and what he made of himself. Now, that's a different story, right? So mm -hmm. he was able to claw his way to this country. He was able to then learn the language. He was able to then do well in school, find a soccer team and succeed in all those. So that part of the story is really different um, and really incredible that he was able to succeed on all levels. How did the protests come together of the team showing up um, outside uh, DHS? Because I mean, that's certainly unusual the idea of a team of such young people coming together going into northwest dc on a hot summer day protesting the department of homeland security how did that come about sure so i believe it was friday of that week uh that brett colton uh, his other coach and myself got word uh, actually from one of our players that lisandro had been detained and his brother um diego Who's Brett Colton? Is he was the U19, the current U19. Uh, he was Lissandra's coach this past year. And I was Lissandra's coach the year before. Mm -hmm. um, and so we both got uh, notified that he, had, he might have been detained, and we started to look into it. And by Saturday afternoon, we had learned that that was the case, and or 100% that that was the case. And we started to try to figure out any way we could help and get to a point where we could do whatever we could to make sure that these boys stayed, stayed in the country. Uh, we failed, but not without making sure our, our voices were heard. And so one of the ways we wanted to make sure that our voices were heard was through that protest. And it was actually uh, one of, I forget who maybe threw the idea out, but as soon as the idea was thrown out, it was accepted widely. And we decided to put it right in front of DHS, which is uh, kind of heading the, the, the process of deporting illegal immigrants, however old they are. We sent it out to a couple players and tried to get their feedback, and they 100% were in. We had a lot of the, his current teammates that were already at their universities, so we didn't get his, we didn't get the whole team, but we were lucky enough to get 50 players from Lissandra's current team, former team, former players that he had played with with us. Uh, and it just shows it shows the family atmosphere and the connections that not only he has made, but that are shared at Bethesda throughout the four years he was there and, and, and beyond. That kids would come out on a day in the middle of summer to really show, show that they believe in this in, in, in these two boys and uh, that they believe in their teammate and their friend. And, and it was a no, for them, it was a no brainer. They would have gone to Columbia. They would have gone to Virginia somewhere and they would have gone to DHS um, mm -hmm. because they believed in them. Mm. Damn. That's, that's, that's beautiful. So it, it was, I'm just trying to get my thoughts on this. So would you, so these students, I mean, these students, these players, it's not like they had a predilection, um, to be angry at Trump's policies before this took place. It was the sort of thing where these are just like typical teenagers, they're playing soccer, and then they hear this hits a friend of ours and and they spring into action. Is that I think that's a better description of it? Yeah, I think that's a great description. You know, teenagers tend to live in a bubble, right? Of their own yeah. bubble. And 
you don't you don't as a teenager, you're never going to look at a policy, a Trump policy or an administration policy on any level and internalize it until it hits home. Um, and the minute it hit home, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat and an independent, your family's Republican, your family's Democrat. This was a player that you intimately knew that you had shared four straight years with that you knew as a person that was a good individual. And then all of a sudden he's being detained for a political policy that for most for a lot of people doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. God. And I imagine for a lot of these young people, this was like the first protest they've ever been to. What was you think the experience like for them on the day of? And also, I'm hoping maybe you can give some follow up for us. I mean, the, the, the deportation then happens so quickly after detention, according to people I've spoken to unusually quickly after detention, especially given the fact that Lissandro and his brother Diego did not have a criminal record. So, so what was the feel for people at the demonstration? And have you been able to speak to anybody since the actual deportation? The, the first part, so, you know, looking at, I'm sure that was the first protest for a, for 99% of them. Um, you know, we obviously were in Washington, DC. So there's, uh, the political fervor in, in and around the DC area is, is higher than most areas of the country. And so they may be uh, slightly more dialed in, but teenagers aren't on the regular going out and protesting ad administration policies. Uh, so do I think they, they handled themselves phenomenally. I thought, um, they were articulate when they spoke, they were passionate when they were chanting, they were respectful to where they were. Um, it's everything you would hope someone of that age would be able to do in terms of rising to the occasion. Right. Um, and what did it teach them? I think it teaches them a lot about who and what you believe in. And you really have to look at, you know, some of those kids were 18 and so they'll be voting in the next election. And you have to really think about who you're voting to become president and who you're voting as your council members. And, and so I think it's a real life example for them early on. I know I didn't have that um, experience at 18. Uh, and so I think it's, it's a really tough way to learn it. But if there is anything good that come out can, that can come out of it, maybe we get a, a future senator or future congressman um, that has the passion to help in a positive manner wow. for, for each other. Now, what about uh, following up with some of these young people since the deportation? Yep. Have you been able to do that? What's the reaction? Frustration, utter and complete disgust. Um, and any suppositions it, about why this happened so quickly? Because I was shocked by it as someone who's followed immigration policy. I've, I've never yeah. seen a turnaround like this. You know, it was so then what was it? We had Monday, we had the rally. Wednesday, I was at CASA for that news conference, and they had already been deported. So, <sighs> what, 48 hours? And, and I was talking with the, the members of CASA and the, and the directors there, and they had, they had never seen it that quickly either. So, you know, whether it was directed down from someone in the administration because it was in their backyard or uh, just something that they wanted to prove a point, I, I don't know. You, 
you know, you never know how these things transpire, but it was lightning fast. Um, players, I don't, I don't, I didn't understand how quickly that would happen. I know the players didn't and their teammates and friends. Um, and when that happens so quickly, you kind of, you wonder why, and there is no, you don't get an answer. Right. And so that frustration level is even higher because there is no memo that's written saying, okay, here's why we expedited it faster, two weeks faster than most cases that are on the docket normally. Well, has anyone been able to speak with Lissandro or Diego since the deportation? Do we have any sense of where yes. they are, how they're doing, what their spirits are at this point, what their plan is at this point? Um, yeah, uh, Brett and myself have both talked to Lissandro. Um, he is getting comfortable with trying to get comfortable with where they are. I think the dire- his direct paraphrase, I would say, was the country's very different from when I left. Uh, I'm trying to acclimate or, and, and get comfortable with where we are right now. Um, and so it's very much trying to figure out how to how to live a daily life that is not what they were intending to live no more than two weeks ago. I mean, the day he was deported was the day he was supposed to check in to Lewisburg for preseason. Mm-hmm. Lewisburg, so, where he was offered, just for my listener, Lewisburg, where he was offered a college scholarship to play soccer. Exactly, exactly. Diego was going to uh, head down and help. Oh, wow. Um, that I didn't know. And oh. and, and so and so the, the, the process, the, the break between heading to North Carolina to, to play and then all of a sudden you're back in El Salvador where the crime rate is astounding. And uh, how do you, how do you, gr- how do you grasp that as a, an 18 or 22 year old? It's, it's impossible. So, um, you know, for, for what had transpired, he seemed very controlled and that shows a lot to his character. Um, I'm not sure I would be able to handle it that way. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I couldn't be prouder of the, of the two boys because, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, they're not sitting in bed and, and cowering and, and, you know, and playing the why me card. They're trying to figure out what their next steps are. And um, their next steps are everyone here is going to try to do what they can to either get bo- the both boys in college, uh, maybe a contact in El Salvador, maybe a contact in Canada, maybe a student visa somewhere where they can continue their education um, and make sure that this doesn't derail their life from this point on and they don't end up just being another statistic. Mm. And and lastly, and if you, if you don't have a, a good answer for this, it's very understandable. really appreciate your time and reporting to us on yeah, what's taken place. But is there anything that listeners can do, anything we could do to show support, anything we could do to – to raise awareness, uh, anything you could recommend for people so they don't just, you know, hear this story and feel that same kind of frustration. Sure. Um, we are going to create some type of GoFundMe to help support the family, uh, to help pay for college, to make sure that these boys aren't left down there without a support system. So uh, once, once we create that, and I think the actual, the, the impressive part is that, that wasn't even our idea. That was his friends and players' idea. The day that Lissandra and Diego were deported was the day all his teammates 
and was supposed to be Lissandro reported to their universities. And so it wasn't lost upon them that they're going to preseason and Lissandro's in El Salvador. Um, so one of them brought up the, the, the thought process of creating a GoFundMe in case they do get a good student, uh, student visa that we can help get them there. And so that'll, we'll, we'll put that together. And, you know, to be honest, outside of that is making sure that this doesn't happen to, to other friends, family members, teammates, either in D.C. or across the country. So standing up, making sure your voice is heard, doing interviews, making sure that what you believe in that's humane is projected around the world and not the policies that are inhumane and vengeful. So, you know, it's, it's very much a be heard, be loud, and as well, we'll, we'll help fund the Claros family. Hey, Coach Nay, thanks so much for joining us here. Absolutely. It was my well, pleasure. Really do appreciate it. Thank you again to Coach Nay. We will have information about the GoFundMe page for the Claros family as soon as it is available. And now a quick word from The Nation magazine. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Look, we are living in a time when real news has never been more important and investigative journalism has never been more important. Please support and subscribe to The Nation Magazine. It's the oldest weekly in the United States, dating back to 1865, and it's never been more vital than in 2017. Subscribe at www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now... Back to the podcast. And now a very special edition of Kaepernick Watch this week where we talk about the latest drama involving the exiling of NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick. This week, the announcement that on August 23rd there will be a rally described as a nonviolent direct action in front of the NFL's Park Avenue headquarters on August 23rd at 5 p.m. This has been called by a host of civil rights organizations. It's been put out there by Spike Lee. And while there's no indication that Colin Kaepernick is connected to the rally, this is about something so much bigger than one quarterback looking for employment. It's about whether in the Trump-Steve Bannon era, speaking out against police violence and institutionalized racism can cost you your job. The rally aims to make sure that Colin Kaepernick never becomes a cautionary tale, a ghost story meant to scare players, but that he remains a lasting inspiration. One of the endorsers of the rally is civil rights legend Harry Belafonte, and this is why he said he was supporting the protest. He said, when a black voice is raised in protest to oppression, those who are comfortable with our oppression are the first to criticize us for daring to speak out against it, end quote. Another thing that's fueling the momentum of this protest is how ridiculous it's become in terms of the quarterbacks that have been signed to NFL rosters and the fact that Colin Kaepernick is still out there looking for work. Seattle Seahawks wide receiver Doug Baldwin, like many players, has gone from giving the NFL the benefit of the doubt to thinking that something is rotten on Park Avenue. He said to ESPN, My original position was that I thought the situation last year with him taking a knee didn't have anything to do with his being unsigned. After viewing what's going on, I've got to take that back. I definitely think that the league and the owners are trying to send a message of stay between the lines, end quote. Look, we know why Kaepernick hasn't been signed. 
It's not only because he famously took that knee, it's also because he inspired other players and other people to speak out. It's because he publicly gave money to organizations like Asada's Daughters and a health clinic at Standing Rock. What we have here, quite simply, and obviously, and baldly, is a case of NFL owners colluding to keep him out of a job. This is not just about punishing him as an individual. It is a statement to every player that you should just collect your checks, get your concussions, and keep your mouth shut. It's a statement by NFL owners that Black Lives Matter only when they entertain or sell league-approved products, and not when they speak out against injustice. As for Kaepernick himself, I met the quarterback at one of his Know Your Rights camps, as people who listen to this podcast know, and he's at peace with the choices that he's made, even if it costs him his livelihood. And that's a beautiful thing. I wish we were all at such peace with our choices. But... I am not at peace, and I know a lot of people are not at peace, with the choices made by the NFL ownership fraternity. On August 23rd, at the NFL's doorstep, people will be protesting the NFL's choice to punish a player for daring to be more than a brand. They will be protesting the idea that the only response to injustice should be silence. And we will be reporting from that rally on August 23rd, in New York City at 5 p.m. and bring you what happened to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, a quick word from the second best podcast hosted by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense. Look, this is rapidly becoming one of my favorite podcasts. It's hosted by John Wiener. It is politics without the boring parts. Every week, he speaks to Nation Magazine journalists and newsmakers about the issues that you care about. Not the issues that the mainstream media is telling you to care about, but the issues that you actually do care about. The podcast is called Start Making Sense with John Wiener. It is really good. Please check it out. Download an episode. Subscribe to it over at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast with the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. This week we have a double Just Stand Up award. The first one goes to Philadelphia Eagles cornerback Malcolm Jenkins. Why love for Malcolm Jenkins? Well, because at the first preseason game of the NFL season, when everybody was talking about how Colin Kaepernick was removed from the NFL because of his activism and players better learn to sit down and shut up, there was Malcolm Jenkins during the anthem with his fist held high. Why did he do that? This is what Malcolm Jenkins said. He said, I want to send a message that we will not easily be moved or deterred from fighting for justice. There are many players across the league who have joined me in working toward new legislation and reestablishing trust and opportunities in our communities. And you can expect to see much more of that. Thank you, Malcolm Jenkins. That relates to what we were talking about earlier in the show. It is so important that Colin Kaepernick become a source of inspiration and not a ghost story scaring players into silence. The second Just Stand Up award goes to Josh Rosen, the quarterback at UCLA. Rosen created a firestorm this week when he said the following, and I quote, Football really dents my ability to take some classes that I need. There are a bunch of classes that are only offered one time. There was a class this spring I had to take, but there was a conflict with spring football. Look, football and school don't go together. Ding, 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 ding. They just don't. Trying to do both is like trying to do two full-time jobs. They're guys who have no business being in school, but they're here because this is the path to the NFL, and there's no other way. Anytime any player puts into school will take away from the time they could put into football. 
They don't realize that they're getting screwed until it's too late. You have a bunch of people at the universities who are supposed to help you out, and they're more interested in helping you stay eligible. At some point, universities have to do more to prepare players for university life and help them succeed beyond football. There's so much money being made in this sport. It's a crime to not do everything you can to help the people who are making it for those who are spending it. End quote. Hell yeah, Josh Rosen. To be clear, what Josh Rosen just said fits perfectly with every discussion I've had with a person who has been a Division I college athlete in a revenue-producing sport over the last 10 years. That's what folks who are NFL commentators who are like 40 or 50 and maybe played in the 80s or 90s, that's what they don't understand, is that the business of college football and the business of college basketball has never put more pressure on the shoulders of 18, 19, 20-year-old people, and the risk of failure for those same people in terms of the floor of poverty in this country has never been lower so the stakes have never been higher and the fall has never been steeper people have to understand that when you play sports at the college level in a revenue producing sports it is a full-time job although it is a full-time job that you are not paid for pay the damn athletes amateurism is a sham go josh rosen And that's where we go to the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. I don't even want to name names because I'm too tired to do it. But it goes to every commentator, every talking head who has never actually talked to any of these athletes and who are sounding off about their water polo scholarships at Pepperdine and how somehow it equips them to say with confidence that they are just lucky to be getting an education, lucky to not have student loans, lucky to be a, in the words of one, a quote unquote, one percenter in college university life, end quote. The ignorance and idiotic privilege of these comments should not even demand a rebuttal. I guess the fact that these people get jobs says more about the current sports journalism landscape than anything else. Or having the hottest take that upsets the most people and being able to demonize largely black students is a much easier path to employment and wealth than actually interviewing and having an analysis. It's a very dark comment about the state of our industry that these kind of views that are completely incurious and uninformed actually get a voice and get a hearing as if it's just for quote-unquote debate purposes when the people who actually have the knowledge are oftentimes excluded from that very debate. But this is where we are. This is Trump's America. In a lot of ways, this is the debate we have because these are the times we are in. Instead of the obvious debate we should have, which is how can we delink the fact that our institutions of higher learning are minor leagues for the National Football League? What is wrong with that? And what can we do to make the system a little bit more just? I want to leave you guys this week with a question. There have been so many fake polls, and yes, they've been dissected and shown to be fake and misleading all over the place, that shows that the NFL lost fans last year because of national anthem protests by players like Colin Kaepernick. Those polls have been debunked, but I want to ask you this question. Is everything that's happened with Colin Kaepernick going to keep you from watching the NFL? Like, will his blackballing or whiteballing, whatever nomenclature you want to use, will that keep you from watching the National Football League? That's my question. 
Give us a call, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. And let us know, will the NFL's treatment of Colin Kaepernick keep you from watching an NFL game? Well, that's all we have this week for the Edge of Sports Podcast. Thank you to my producer, David Tigabu, who is running solo this week. Thank you as well to Dan Baker, who I'm sure will help from far away, some way, somehow. For everybody out there listening, you can always contact me, Dave Zirin, over Twitter at Edge of Sports. You can follow our special podcast Twitter feed at Edge of Sports Pod. And you can always call the line with any questions or concerns, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Please, if you like the podcast, give it a rating, leave a review, go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. For everybody out there listening, I'm Dave Zirin. Please stay frosty, everybody. We are out of here. Peace.